Well, good morning, Crossroads. How are you guys doing today? Good. Awesome. Awesome. Really excited to open the Word of God with you guys today. But before we jump into the sermon, I just want to take a moment and tell you a little bit about um, kind of a big event that we have coming up here in the life of our church in two weeks. So in two weeks from today is what we are calling Family Ministry Sunday. So that's two weeks from today. It's going to be on Sunday, September 3rd. And um, the reason that we feel like this is really important is we are a church full of kids here at Crossroads, um, in case you haven't noticed that. Uh, we have a lot of kids. We put a high value on kids and the way that we serve kids here at Crossroads and here in Bay Ridge and here in Brooklyn in general. And so Family Ministry Sunday is a worship service where Crossroads will come together as a complete body of Christ, children included. So we want to let you guys know about this. It's two weeks from today. It's Sunday, September 3rd. And, what, and here's kind of what you need to know. Here's what that's going to look like. So on that day, children ages 2 and up will be included in the worship service on Sunday, September 3rd. The entire service that day will be designed to engage your kids in worship. And so we have a couple ways that's going to happen. Through singing, through a Bible devotional time, as well as a kid-centered sermon, and a couple of extra surprises. We also want to encourage you guys in advance to talk to your children. Um, that's why we're letting you know now two weeks out so you can start having those, those small conversations. You can start dropping that in getting them excited about the fact that they're going to be joining you in worship and letting them know that it's a special service that's going to be geared towards them. So our, um, our lead pastor, Pastor Will, he will be uh, preaching a message designed just for kids. There's going to be a devotional time as well for them. We will have a Crossroads Kids nursery classroom available for kids ages um, under two, so zero to one, um, or if you feel like, like you would like to have your, have your child there, we can make arrangements for that. So if you have questions, I want you to reach out to me. I want you to reach out to Emily Mueller um, from Crossroads Kids. Either one of us would be glad to talk to you a little bit more about what that's going to look like. But I did just want to take a moment here before we get into the sermon to let you guys know that that's coming in two weeks. And you will start hearing more about that over the next couple of weeks. Now let's jump into the sermon, into the Word of God. Have you guys ever heard of the show, This Is Us? It premiered on NBC in 2016. Um, it got a lot of really, really positive reviews. And here's kind of what it's about. It's a story about several people who share the same birthday. And it talks about how their lives are intertwined in unique ways. But according to critics, what gives the show its high ratings and its connection to a wide audience is that people can relate to the characters in the show. The amount of empathy and tears, if you're honest, that that show produces is really key to its success. One critic even said, I'm a fan. I care about these people. Remember, these are fictional characters. But, but this, is a, this is a critic, a TV show critic that says, I care about these people. The title, This Is Us, is in many ways what fans would say about their connection to the show. They'd say, that's me. Like, I'm that person, or I can relate to that person. That's me. This is us. Like, this is our life, too. And their story, in some way, people might say, is my story. They might watch the show and they say, that person's story is very similar to my story. Like, their story is my story. And in the same way, as Pastor Will explained last week, the story of Jonah really is our story. In many ways, we are Jonah. Today, what I want to do is elaborate on that a little bit as we continue to study the book of Jonah. So if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, please go ahead and open up to Jonah chapter 3, and that's where we'll begin today. So Jonah 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. 
Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, he removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And so this week, we pick up the story in Jonah 3. Jonah is standing on a beach covered in fish vomit. What a way to start your week. Yes, you heard that right. At the end of chapter 2, if you remember from last week, um, where Pastor Will taught us, after Jonah repents, he prays to God, the fish that he's being held inside of that was appointed by God literally vomits him out onto dry land. So there's Jonah, standing there on the beach. Now what? And I think there's four things that we can learn from Jonah 3 about what happens next. So if you're taking notes, this is point number one. Your story is never over. Your story is never over. Think about it. The book of Jonah easily could have ended with Jonah being rescued from the fish. And he could have been set free to live life happily ever after, free from the fish. That'd be a pretty good ending, right? But by God's grace, that's not how the story ends. God doesn't take Jonah out of the game, does he? He doesn't sideline him. Jonah's story, our story, your story, isn't over yet. I feel as though this is a fear among many Christians. I feel as though we fear this. We fear that our story's over. Which is why I want to spend some time talking about it today. And why do I think it's a fear? Because I've felt this fear in my own life. Here's some examples. Maybe you think, what if I don't network with the right people and I miss out on a job opportunity? My story's over. What if the one person that I think, the one person that I think that God has for me to marry starts dating somebody else? What if my past sins keep me from serving the Lord? What if God says enough with me? What if I don't obey God in this one decision? Does that eventually lead me down a road to being outside of God's will and God's plan forever? Church, I want you guys to hear this. Your capacity to be used by God can never be forfeited by your own disobedience. Your capacity to be used by God can never be forfeited by your own disobedience. I think far too often we think that God's going to keep us on the sidelines because of past sins or because of the scars that we carry around with us from our past. But guys, that's just not true. Look at Jonah. Look at what we just read. God desires to use you and me like he used Jonah. God desires to use beautiful, messed up, skin-scarred people to point other people to him. That's God's desire. That's God's plan. After all, (laughs) think about this. When we look like we don't have it all together, when we look like we don't have it all figured out, Doesn't that make it obvious that God's the one that's doing his work through us? When we're the broken vessels, doesn't God get the glory? Absolutely, he should. And that's kind of the whole point. We're called to witness to a God who loves us and a God who doesn't leave us on the sidelines, even after we screw up, like Jonah. Jonah, like many of us, 
probably thought he had wrecked God's plan for his life. When he's in the fish, he's thinking, this is it. You know, I thought it was the ocean, now it's this fish. And then after he gets spit back up on land, he's probably like, well, God got me out of it, but he's certainly not going to ask me to do anything now. Like, I really messed it up. But here's how we know he didn't. The first words that God spoke to Jonah after he was out of the fish are nearly identical. They're not exactly the same, but they're nearly identical to the first words of the book of Jonah, period. God says, arise or go to Nineveh and give them a message from me. God tells Jonah to go do the same thing that God told Jonah to go do in Jonah chapter 1. And this is after the fish. God didn't chastise Jonah. He didn't spend time in small talk. He didn't do anything like that. He just simply repeated his command to Jonah. God's will for Jonah never changed, despite Jonah's disobedience. And church, we can take comfort in that. Now to be clear, God doesn't need us to accomplish his plans in the world. He's God. But instead, he wants to do his work through us. Perhaps it might have been easier for God to speak directly to the Ninevites. But instead, he wanted Jonah, and he wants us, to be the vessels through which his message of reconciliation is given to the entire world. So in short, Jonah's story doesn't end on a beach, once he's freed from a fish. Instead, after Jonah repents, after Jonah turns back to God, God's right there with the same command for Jonah, which is, go to Nineveh. Your story is never over, just like Jonah's. So now, what does Jonah do with this command that he receives to God? God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Well, he goes to Nineveh. So let's keep reading. Picking up at verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is point number two. God uses your obedience to bless others. God uses your obedience to bless others. So Jonah now, he's going, he heads off to Nineveh. It's described as an exceedingly great city. So this can mean two things. First, Nineveh was a huge city relative to cities back then. It would have taken three days to either walk across Nineveh or around its walls. Also, the population of Nineveh was about 120,000 people. So let's put that in comparison. Some estimates of Jerusalem's size, and that would have been a major city in Israel, some estimates of Jerusalem's size put it at about 6,000 to 8,000 people at this time. Nineveh has 120,000. This would be like comparing New York City and its metro area, which if you measure 75 miles outside of Times Square, that's the metro area of New York City, that would be like comparing New York City's metro area to the metro area of Virginia Beach, Virginia, or Jacksonville, Florida, or somewhere like that. Bottom line, back in the day, Nineveh was a mega city. Second, many scholars tell us that this phrase, an exceedingly great city, written in Hebrew, would indicate that Nineveh was an important city to God. And this actually seems to fit the context of the book of Jonah as well. Because even though Jonah doesn't care about Nineveh, as, as we know and as we'll find out, God cares about Nineveh. So, this, so Nineveh is a great city in size and in importance to God. So after getting one day in, so Jonah's walking through the city, he's one day in, Jonah preaches a sermon that in Hebrew was only five words. It's only five words. It's eight words in English. It's, it's five in Hebrew. The scriptures say in verse 4, And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 
Note that there's no clear description of what the destruction is that's coming. There's no, there's no call to repent. There's no call to trust in the Lord. He just says, 40 days, none of us toast. But we're going to learn later in chapter 4 that Jonah may have actually intentionally preached a short sermon with the hopes that there wouldn't be any repentance and that God would actually destroy the city. But Jonah was wrong. Even after being saved by God from imminent doom and imminent death and destruction himself, he fails to realize that God was intent on using him to be a messenger, to be a messenger of hope for others. You see, God uses us like Jonah to speak truth and love to those who are outside of Christ with the hope that they will repent and that they'll trust in Jesus for eternal salvation. As we're going to see in a few moments, God uses Jonah's obedience to be a blessing to the Ninevites. The fact that Jonah went and preached the message that God gave him shows that God's going to use that. The Ninevites will turn from evil and they'll look toward God for mercy all because they heard Jonah's message of warning. So where's God calling you to be obedient? That other people might be blessed. Where is he calling you to reach out to somebody? Who are you today withholding grace from that God's prompting you to go towards? Who are you withholding grace from that God wants to show grace to? God uses your obedience to bless others. The third thing that we can learn from Jonah, chapter 3, is this. The power of God's word changes us who believe. The power of God's word changes us who believe. Let's read verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So here's what you need to see from that. They didn't simply believe Jonah. It doesn't say the people of Nineveh believed Jonah. They believed God. They specifically believed that Jonah was communicating to them a word from God or God's word. The Ninevites believed, yes, but then their actions proved their belief. So Jonah preaches a five-word sermon to them, and God uses that message to change the Ninevites' entire outlook on themselves and on their lives. So look at the response from the text. Let's see what the scriptures say. It says right here in in, uh, verse 6, it says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, he removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And then he issues a proclamation and published through Nineveh that says this, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. What you have to remember here about the Ninevites is that these were extremely violent people. Pastor Will, in his first sermon on Jonah, already described some of the things that the Ninevites would do. They would torture and they would kill anybody who opposed them. I mean, mean, these were ruthless, violent people. Yet here's the amazing thing about God's word. In an instant, God's word confronts them in their sin and they repent. God's word had the power over the Ninevites to do what no man could do, what no army could do, and what no nation could do. God's word had the power to do something amazing. In fact, the Ninevites even went so far as to trust in God's mercy for their sin. Verse 9 says, and this is, this is part of the decree from the king of Nineveh, it says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. 
I mean, this is like full-on belief, like, I don't know if God's going to do this, but we need to throw ourselves on him. <laughs> they believed, they believed, even if just a little bit, that God might have mercy on them if they were to repent and trust in him. Remember, these aren't Israelites. These aren't people that are familiar with, with the God of the Bible. I mean, these are the Ninevites. But they said, who knows, God may turn and relent. So we, so we, we need to throw ourselves on his mercy. The word of God came to them. The word of God confronted them. And the word of God, praise God, changed them. The same goes for us. God's word, if we will receive it, if we will receive it, if we'll internalize it, has the power to change you and me today. Specifically, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to change every aspect of our lives from the inside out. Think about this. Think, think about the message of the Bible for us. When you hear that in the eyes of the only one that matters, and that being God, in the eyes of the only one that matters in all the universe, that you're at the same time more wretched and evil than you and I would ever admit we are, but that we're also more loved and valued than we ever hoped we could be, doesn't that make you want to turn to God and trust him? Because this is in God's eyes. In God's eyes, we are evil and wretched, yes, but we are way more loved and way more valued than we ever hoped we could be, than we've ever experienced here on earth. Doesn't that make you want to turn to God? Doesn't that make you want to trust God? Isn't that really the only motivation that would give you power over the sin that's in your life? Isn't that really the only thing that could set you free to live your life in a way that pleases God? Church, we are Jonah in many ways, but we're also Nineveh. And we've all done things in God's eyes. We are all deserving of the same punishment that God was going to lay down on Nineveh. But here's the amazing thing about grace. If we will believe the word of God, which promises us forgiveness and grace to all who will believe, then we can be saved, we can be spared, just like the Ninevites were. And so this leads me into my last point from Jonah 3. God wants your redemption, not your destruction. God wants your redemption, not your destruction. And so in verse 10, it says, When God saw what they did, talking about the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So contrary to what many of us think, what many people think, what many people out in the world, if you ask people on the street, contrary to what, what we think, God's not standing in heaven with a lightning bolt in his hand, ready to lay the smack down on us the first time that we tell a lie to cover our tracks, the first time that we gossip, the first time that we take something that's not ours, the first time that we talk about somebody behind their back, uh, the first time that we run away from God. He's not standing in heaven with the lightning bolt in the smackdown. He's not. He's not. In fact, in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, God himself actually passes before Moses and this is what God says about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the, the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. When God saw how the Ninevites repented, remember, he's merciful, he's gracious, He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's abounding in faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression. He forgives sin. When he saw how the Ninevites repented and how they turned towards him, 
God responds with great grace. Let me say that again. God responds with great grace towards the people that he created, who in turn kill and torture other people he created. So God's looking out on his creation and he says, I created all these people. These people over here are killing and torturing the other people that I created. But yet I'm still, because I'm God, because that's who I am, because that's my character, I'm still going to be merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love, and I'm going to respond to them with great grace. So do you still think that God wants to wipe you out? Do you still think that God would say enough with you? No. Let's be clear. God is a just God. He is a just God. That means that he's going to reject those who ultimately reject him. But praise God, he gives us grace and he gives us time to repent. And he does that because he wants your redemption. Church, he wants our redemption, not our destruction. How can, maybe, maybe you're, you're still wondering, you're like, you know, I don't know, like, like, how can I really be sure of that? So let's see what God says again about himself. This is God describing God in Ezekiel 33, verse 11. He says, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And then God says this, he says, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? God says, turn back. God says, you can turn back. God desires that we turn away from sin. He desires that we be redeemed by Christ. God wanted that for the Ninevites. That's why he sent Jonah to preach to them. That's how this whole thing started. God knew he was going to do a work there, and he knew that it would put his glory on display. So he sends Jonah over there, and he says, Jonah, I need you to preach this. Jonah's all hesitant. We have the boat incident. We have the fish incident. Now Jonah's back on the mission. God sends him over there. He preaches a five-word sermon, and then revival breaks out. God wanted the redemption of the Ninevites, just like he wants our redemption. And here, too, we, we see a parallel between Jonah and Nineveh. Jonah, think about this, like Jonah was spared from God's wrath so that he could be used by God so that Nineveh could be spared by God's wrath. So here's one guy who's spared from God's wrath that God now uses to preach a message that's going to spare somebody else from God's wrath. Like, praise God, you can't write this stuff. You can't make this stuff up. God wants your redemption, not your destruction. And so we see the story of Jonah and the story of Nineveh is our story. This is us, right? This is us. And so as a recap, here's, here's the four things that I really want you to remember today about Jonah's story and about your story. Number one, your story is never over. Your story is never over. Be encouraged by that church. Number two, God uses your obedience to bless others. There's things that God calls us to do that at times are uncomfortable, that at times seem very difficult, but yet he uses those things to be a blessing to other people. Number three, the power of God's word changes us who believe. God's word is powerful. It could do things in Nineveh that no man, nation, or army could do. And then finally, God wants your redemption, not your destruction. Some of you have never truly experienced the redemption of God. Some of you need to obey God's command to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Remember, God wants your redemption. He doesn't want your destruction. He doesn't take any pleasure in the death of those who reject him. 
Remember how it said that in Ezekiel? Like he doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. Remember, God loves you more than you love you. And if you're like me, you love you a lot. But God loves you more than that. I've actually heard it said this way. I've heard it said that the last voice that an unbeliever, somebody who rejects the gospel, somebody who doesn't, who, who doesn't place their trust in Christ, I've heard it said that the last voice an unbeliever will ever hear as they step out of this life and, and into eternity, into eternity apart from God, into eternity in hell, into eternity apart from Christ, the last voice they'll hear is the voice of Jesus saying, you don't have to do this. There's another way. Turn to me and be saved. And today, you have an opportunity to do that. You can experience the redemption of God. It comes through repenting, which actually just means turning, turning away. Turning away from your sin. Believing that Jesus has done everything necessary for you to be saved. And now as a church, like we do every week, we're going to partake in communion together as an act of worship. And the reason we do that is we want to remember the sacrifice that Christ gave on our behalf. We want to remember the cross when we do communion. We remember his broken body, broken for us. We remember his spilled blood. And if you're a believer, this is a time for you to come forward and to receive communion and to remember that, to eat of the bread, to drink of the cup, to remember what Christ has done for you. But if you're not a follower of Jesus or you're not sure, or you don't really know what to think about this whole Christianity thing, but you're here, Communion's not for you. This is a family thing. It's a thing for, for those who are, who are in God's family. We just ask that you remain seated while everybody else comes and receives the bread and the cup. But let me also encourage you. While they're receiving the bread and the cup, you can receive Christ. You can repent of your sin. You can pray and talk to God just like he's right next to you. It's available for you. His grace, his great grace is available for you. So as followers of Jesus come forward to receive communion, I ask you, if you're not sure, to consider receiving Christ. Putting the weight of your life on what he did for you on the cross. You can talk to him in a prayer right where you are. His grace is definitely available for you today. Now Ryan's going to lead us in worship as we take the bread and we take the cup. So you come forward now.